Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. If you conceptualize the space of social media, but more generally the space of kind of, you know, networks and information spreading across the world, if it happens that the networks that make things spread fast are also the networks that kind of select on which for lack of a better word, we could call kind of, you know, shallow, convenient, familiar ideas, then it means that the vast majority of the things we're going to see spreading are things that are, you know, unless we go looking for them, um, are things that are, you know, shallow, convenient, and familiar. And so you've got this kind of process of what could, for lack of a better word, is like co-evolution. The networks are forming and then the content is forming to adapt to the networks because everyone's trying to get their content to spread the fastest and spread the farthest. And so I think that it, it's a, an interesting scientific observation, but actually has meaningful social implications too for how we cultivate the kinds of social networks that we'd like to see in online communities to foster the kinds of, the kinds of ideas and the, and the sort of depth of interaction that we'd like to help sustain over the course of like the next iteration of culture evolution, which is you know, pretty much happening online at this stage. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Damon, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. I found out about your work because I stumbled upon your book, Change How to Make Big Things Happen on Amazon. And at first, it seemed like a very clickbaity title. But then when I read the book, I thought, this is hands down the most well documented explanation of how to build anything and make an idea spread that I've come across in 10 years. It was the best book I read last year, which is why I immediately reached out to you after reading it. Um, but before we get into that, given the nature of your background, uh, I want to start asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having <laughs> on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Interesting. Um, so I really started my kind of early life in an unusual way. I think that, um, some of the other interviews out there might cover this, but I, I grew up in essentially what was like a commune setting. So um, it was a Quaker community that was founded on these principles of like tolerance and interracial, interdenominational um, communities. So uh, that was an unusual upbringing, particularly in America than in the 80s, <laughs> when most people were like focused on Reagan and wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, you know, privy to a lot of social change movements, movements around, you know, um, 
uh, sustainable foods, movements around uh, water conservation, and of course for you know race and, and gender equity. Um, and so I just kind of was um, absorbing that as a kid and also noticing, you know, over the years as when I became a teenager that some of these movements had succeeded, had really gained kind of traction, um, and other ones hadn't um, and are still struggling. Like water conservation is still not something that most Americans think about. Um, but, you know, the same groups that were working on that, that, you know, also successfully pioneered the movement of whole foods into mainstream American consciousness um, have been like basically ineffective at changing people's conceptions of water and water usage. So um, what really entertained my thinking as a kid was why are some of these, you know, movements really taking off and getting traction and why are others not? Um, and is there any kind of, you know, theory or science behind this? And, uh, and I would say that, you know, I, I kind of bounced from group to group in high school. There were lots of sort of interesting things going on in each of these different groups, but um, what kept me kind of, I would say, motivated socially in terms of my friends was the people who were who were thinking about similar kinds of questions, maybe through their own lens and their own, their own things they were thinking about. Um, but I think the question of social change is something that, particularly in the last like 50 years, has been a big question in the American consciousness. Like how we we see a lot of social change, we wonder about when it works and why it works. And um, growing up as I did after the civil rights movement, you've got these like great historical examples. And then of course, living through like the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, that raised kind of our awareness that big things can happen. And then the question is, well, you know, why? Why didn't they happen earlier? Why did they happen then? And is there any kind of explanation? No. And I would say in many ways, that's really framed my thinking as a, as a scientist. Mm. Well, growing up in a Quaker community, I mean, I only know, uh, you know, the things I know about Quakers from just sort of media, you know, representations. What misperceptions do you think that people like uh, me have uh, just based on the media that I consume about the kind of upbringing you have, whether it's related to religion? Well, sure. This is like, you know, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Whether it's related to religion or just the general social environment. Yeah, there there are lots of different kinds of like, you know, when you say common, it means a lot of different things. Um, and I traveled around in my early 20s and kind of visited a bunch of them. And they're some of them are pretty different and honestly a little scary. Um, the thing about the one that, that I grew up in is that uh, it was founded in the 1940s, actually in 1940, um, basically from people escaping the Holocaust. So it was a lot of German Jews um, and other people who were sort of sympathetic to the, the sort of plight of German Jews. Um, and so the, the principles there were like this idea that everyone would be sort of tolerant of you know, different ideas, religions, beliefs, and so forth. Um, and so it wasn't, it, it was Quaker in the sense that those were Quaker principles, uh, but it wasn't Quaker in the sense that, you know, it required any kind of religious um, uh, membership. So mm -hmm. there are lots of non-Quakers living there. Um, and so it was really kind of a, before multiculturalism was like a popular idea or something that we talk about, which of course now it's, it's something that's, um, again, made its way to the mainstream and, and very well accepted in the U.S. Um, but the 1970s, when I was, you know, we moved there, um, it was just a kind of, uh, um, a bit of an, of an oasis in, you know, in the midst of the rest of the country of people trying to sort of organize life in a, in a way that would be, you know, coherent and consistent with capitalism. Everyone had real jobs. They worked in the real world. But there was a kind of um, communal sensibility in terms of their accountability, their responsibility for the community, for, you know, doing work parties, helping out at the local, you know, soccer field, everyone sort of uh, pitching in and also going, you know, to a weekly um, meeting and then to a monthly kind of meeting that would be uh, very much like what you would think of as like Vermont town hall-ish, mm -hmm. um, except with certain certain principles governing the, 
the rules and and how people engage with each other. And I think that that you know in the suburbs, this was like in outside of Philadelphia, it was just a very unusual um, kind of uh, creation. I think looks more like small town Europe or small town New England um, from a you know from generations bygone. But I think that it's uh, what's interesting about it, particularly in the time when I was growing up, was that it was just really a matter of principle. It's like families, mostly people with young children, decided to move there and raise their kids there as a way of providing them with a reference point for like what civic mindedness looks like, what you know community belonging looks like, what activism looks like, and you know fundamentally what you know social responsibility looks like. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think that was in many ways the 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 sort of guiding principle behind it. And I I thought a lot in the years afterwards. Um, when I, you know, after I went to, go out to college and visited other places, you know, like these communes in New Mexico that were really, I mean, very you know, spiritually focused. So they had gurus and things like this that were very different from the way I grew up, which was like most people, you know, everyone just had a job and this was like the homestead where everyone lived. It wasn't um, self-contained in any way. Um, but I think that the misconception probably like from when I was like five, six, seven, eight years old and you go to middle school, you know, the misconception <laughs> probably that you have the Quaker Oats box mm-hmm. and you have the guy on the Quaker Oats box. And I think most people, you know, there's a kind of association of that with like Mormon. Um, but again, the principle of the community wasn't to be committed to any specific religious doctrine. It was more that these principles of tolerance. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I mean, you've talked about social responsibility, social change and communal accountability uh, and how, you know, we've seen throughout history uh, great social change. But that requires uh, optimizing for collective interest instead of self-interest. And I think as a society, we've kind of gone in the other direction. Uh, how do we get back? I mean, in the midst of sort of a very individualistic society where everybody has an online presence, which ironically is one of the reasons you and I are talking. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is basically to help people grow their online presence because I, I just felt this was the science of how to do that. But uh, at the same time, I think that there's this darker side in which we've you know, maximized self-interest to a point of diminishing returns. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think we've maximized self-interest. <laughs> I think that there's, there's, it could, it could be a whole lot worse than it is today. Um, I think that the, the marketing around kind of the me um, generation and that the, you know, the world according to sort of my own personal sense of, you know, fame and self-presentation, um, which has really caught on more in the generations after me than in my generation, um, you know, the millennials and, and you know, Gen Z. Um, it's something that's interesting because it's it's served certain commercial goals for you know technology companies to be to sort of promote that conception just in the same way that in the eighties it you know the I want my MTV right was like a popular slogan and that fed into a certain conception of things I want things I deserve things that make me a whole human being so um, I think these conceptions of you know self as the center of uh, commercial and you know product center universe is something that has been around for a little while, but I think that the, you're absolutely right. There's been a kind of an ebb and flow of the degree to which like that's widely accepted. Um, I would say that I actually feel like this um, generation now, the, you know, the last 10 years has been a little bit more socially active than the 10 years prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I'm, I was extremely happy to see the, the sort of growth of Black Lives Matter um, because a lot of people, when they see those events, say and this is again just because of people's sort of their social worlds they live in and their their exposure to the, the sort of the kinds of news they they consume and the kinds of um, conversations they have with friends and colleagues but a lot of people see those um, events and the media postings around them and say oh my god there's this new problem of violence against you know inner city black youth 
And of course, it's not at all a new problem. It's a problem that's been around and far worse for decades. Um, what's happening is there's a kind of increasing public awareness of it and increasing public consciousness of it that's for the first time integrated across different you know, social groups. And this is one of the sort of big theses in the book is when you see these kinds of movements grow in a way that's not just a niche group mobilizing around their own sort of uh, self-interest, but a group that somehow spans uh, communities and you know, demographic boundaries that traditionally wouldn't you know, necessarily mobilize around an issue like this then you're seeing something very special happen with the social networks and essentially the collective consciousness. And so to make that more concrete, what you see with Black Lives Matter is initially it started as this kind of marginal fringe movement, the vast, you know, the 2012, 2013, 2014, the vast majority of Americans thought it was um, uh, just a kind of, uh, basically a, a complaint by a group of people who were probably being treated fairly, but didn't understand, you know, the, the sort of the pressures that the police were under and things like this. And so they didn't support the movement. And at that point, the movement was relatively peaceful. It was just, you know, these small protests in city to city. Um, and it really was after Ferguson um, and the sort of explosion of support for Black Lives Matter and the actual, you know, codification of the, the movement in the term Black Lives Matter, um, that then it sort of took on a national awareness um, and sort of attention from the White House and so forth. And then, of course, with George Floyd in, in 2020, with the sort of national and then international protests. And the question is, well, how is that possible that, you know, by in, 20, in 2013, 2014, it's really just like, you know, Black inner city residents mobilizing around this issue that most of re the rest of America thinks is a marginal issue. And then by 2020, it's only six years later. I mean, it's not a long time in the, the history of cultural evolution. And only six years later, you have like white suburban housewives marching side by side with black inner city youth to protest Black Lives Matter. Like that's a significant change in the reach and the sort of conception of relevance of this movement to all these different populations. Um, and what happens in that, in that six year window is a changing structure of the social networks on social media. And so what's interesting from that point of view is, sure, social media can be a commercial vehicle for celebrating the self and for making people feel as though, you know, their private desires are the most important thing in the world. But it's also this phenomenal vehicle for establishing um, essentially shared communication networks across groups that hadn't been talking before and certainly not have talking about like such substantive issues. And one of the powerful things that happens in that space of, of communication networks across groups, and one of the concepts we can talk about today, if we have time, is this idea of like what that bridge across groups looks like. So that winds up being like a key scientific factor for understanding when these kinds of movements are successful. Yeah. Well, I, um, sorry. Go ahead. The creation of these bridges. Oh, no, let me just finish the thought. And then I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really interested in your, your follow-up. Um, I just wanted to say that one of the one of the points is that what happens in that communication network when you have these effective bridges across groups is that the language that each group uses to describe their own concerns winds up starting to correspond and ultimately coordinate across different groups. And that's just a function of the interaction across them. And so all of a sudden you see terms that before, like a couple of years earlier, that one term would have been private to a certain group and its own interests the term takes on a new sort of semantic value. And all of a sudden, different groups of people, different demographic backgrounds, different histories, different individual economic concerns are all using a, a kind of similar set of terms to mean things that are all personally valuable to them and their families. And that, you know, that kind of linguistic change, it can seem kind of, you know, it, it trivial or in some way like 
technical to study the evolution of language, it turns out it's deeply meaningful because it's really how people talk about their lives. And when people start talking about their lives in these overlapping ways, then you can have a movement like Black Lives Matter that really somehow encompasses something that's intimate to people from all different walks of life. You're an educator uh, at an elite educational institution. And, you know, in the last few years, we've seen a lot of changes. I mean, I went to a Ber- Berkeley as an undergrad. And, you know, the joke with me and my sister is if we had the grades we did in high school, there's no way in hell we'd get in now. Uh, if you were tasked based on the knowledge you have about social change with uh, redesigning our education system to prepare students for the future, what would you change about it? Wow, what a big question. <laughs> so many, uh, there's, so many, well, there's so many sides to that. There's, um, I would say, first of all, there's the thing you just mentioned with regard to like admissions and um, the, the challenges of uh, elite institutions um, and some of the pressures that you know, now fall on high school students and also on parents. Um, and then the second one probably is cost, mm-hmm. right? The exclusiveness of these universities by, by virtue of how expensive they become. And I think the third one is the classroom itself. And the question of, and this is something that's extremely timely, um, the question of intellectual and academic freedom, right? Because the, there's a, a big issue regarding like what can be talked about in the classroom. Um, and it's got some, it it seems like, you know, straightforward, you know, American neoliberalism. Like we, we think everything's safe in the classroom. The classroom is a place of free speech. It's not as simple as that, right? There are some topics that, and some views that you wouldn't necessarily want articulated as like equally valid in a classroom setting. Um, and so the topic of, you know, how to improve the education system, I think in particular at the university level involves all three, which is, you know, how to frame the expectations for students and what their goals are, how to think about cost and financing and, you know, making education in general, high quality education less exclusive. And then third, like what is really the function of the university? How do we how do we maintain a free and um, protected intellectual debate that allows students and teachers to engage in subtle and you know difficult conversations about topics like you know histories of racism, histories of sexism, you know movements today like the January sixth attack on the Capitol, like in a way that's um, you know intellectually liberal in the broad sense of being able to interrogate all sides of the problem instead of just assuming as we all do that there are certain things that are just wrong and so we just don't talk about them um that can sometimes stifle um that can sometimes stifle a productive intellectual discussion and also the you know fundamental process of learning beyond the immediate context uh so these are, I think these are the three issues that are probably at stake um, in improving the educational system. Wow. Well, let's get into the book. Um, you know, I think that, like I said, to me, this was probably the psychology of how to actually build an audience or, you know, build a company or make any sort of idea spread in a way that I had never seen explained before in so much detail. Um, and let's start with, uh, you know, the myths that you talk about, uh, the biggest one being the influencer myth, which I think is really relevant to a lot of people who are, are listening to the show, because I think every guest here would be considered, quote unquote, an influencer. But I think the thing that really struck me that you talked about was this idea that you say that the power of highly connected social stars, or as we now call them influencers, to spread innovations turns out to be one of the most enduring and misleading myths in social science. It has infiltrated the world of sales, marketing, publicity, and even politics, so much so that even when an innovation spreads from the periphery to achieve worldwide influence, we still give credit for its success to a social star. And 
the funny thing is there's probably not a person listening to this who doesn't uh, hasn't at one point or another thought, hey, you know, if uh, I got to be on Oprah, I would be famous overnight and I'd sell a million books. Or if uh, Gary Vaynerchuk shared my podcast with his audience, then I'd have a million subscribers tomorrow. Uh, one, where did how do we arrive at that conclusion and why is it wrong? Right. Well, so the the idea of the influencer, it really started in the 1940s with um, some groundbreaking work by sociologists who are trying to figure out the role of media. So how effective are essentially commercials on radio or, you know, subsequently on television um, at getting people to buy products? So it's kind of a basic question. Um, but then it, it actually connects to the, the deeper question of democracy because the same strategies of advertising products were also used to advertise candidates, right? So you have these radio broadcasts with candidate... Um, some speeches and also radio, you know, television commercials with candidates. And the question was, you know, <clears throat> is that actually affecting people's voting behavior? And what they found out was actually that there were um, people who were paying more attention to the news than other people. And those people were acting as like filters. And so they had this kind of model where like, okay, media, commercials, you know, information from the world comes into the the, the sort of social life of, of regular citizens um, really by getting uh, uh, attention from one person who's a kind of social person who has a lot of connections and has a lot of attention. Um, and that person then winds up being the source of distribution for that information through the network. And that was the, the, the original idea of the, what's called the opinion leader. And when now today in social media is called the influencer is that there are some, there's a small number of people who are more connected and more attentive. And those are the people that are basically filtering all the information in the world through their social networks. And then everything's just propagating. Um, so that was the big idea. And we've stuck with that for a long time because it, it really, it hooks into, and I think that, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book in 2000 that kind of just amplified this intuition um, with some really nice prose um, and a couple of, you know, nice examples that, you know, highlight cases where um, we can easily imagine someone who's, you know, highly visible making, you know, buying a product or using something that everyone else sees, and then they copy that. And that that becomes a sort of a logic. Um, for diffusion and for influence. And the idea is that like that actually works pretty well for things like uh, coconut water, mm -hmm. right? So if a highly high profile person adopts a kind of trivial thing like that or a piece of gossip. Um, and the uh, idea had been, well, that, that that actually is a really good description that actually maps onto our basic science of disease spreading too. Someone who's highly connected gets the measles and a lot of people wind up getting the measles from them, right? So it's a, it's a kind of generalized intuition about how networks operate. It turns out that all of those um, ideas fail when we shift from looking at, you know, easy things like teeth whitening creams um, to things that require some work in order to change our thinking or to change our behavior. So like disruptive products or bold political initiatives or, you know, today, the movements for sustainability and for race and gender equity. Uh -huh. um, and what we really see is that in those cases, the influencers not only aren't very effective at initiating change, but if they try to do it before any other process has taken off, like they could be effective for spreading, like an example I gave, like the teeth whitening cream. Um, if they tried to spread some kind of bold political initiative that way, what would wind up happening is they would immediately lose their status as an influencer. Mm -hmm. Because what's going on here is that all of the outgoing ties from an influencer for like spreading what I call a simple contagion, those are also incoming ties in the sense that they are being observed and evaluated and monitored by this vast audience. And so they can't just do whatever they want. 
in fact, most of what they do is tailored to the kind of biases and beliefs and sort of um, normal expectations of their community. And so if they want to kind of shift those expectations, it's not going to happen by them changing everyone at once. What has to happen is there's a different part of the social network, which is out in the periphery. It's much less observed. It's much less um, subject to that kind of like criticism and comment on a regular basis. But that's where a new idea in the periphery can take hold and start to get reinforced and start to gain traction. And so this is where really the, the big theory of tipping points help us to, helps us to understand that there are special locations in the network that are not obvious. They're kind of hidden out there in the corners. But those are the locations where you can really effectively grow a tipping point for change, um, partially because they're less in the view of everyone else who's sort of doing all this censoring work to keep everyone in line with norms and expectations and kind of standard ways of thinking. Um, and so while it makes sense that, you know, influencers are effective for a lot of things, those things typically don't involve a significant amount of change. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to change, we're actually finding that uh, the strategy of you know looking at regular people in these sort of network periphery locations um, turns out to be a really consistent way of explaining when change occurs and also thinking about it you know prospectively in terms of how you might st- you know strategically build a network to grow uh, grow a tipping point yeah well it's funny you say that because um and i think i'd share this with you when i emailed you about this uh, i remember when i started the podcast i had this ridiculous notion that I would interview all these really well-known bloggers. They would tweet my interviews with their thousands or tens of thousands of followers and every interview would go viral. And of course, within three months, it became very apparent to me that that was not going to happen. And I realized it was our listeners who were actually causing the show to grow. And uh, funny enough, like a lot of our early guests were basically nobodies. Nobody had heard of them until they were on our show. And to this day, I still keep that in mind. Like I will always choose somebody who I think is interesting over somebody who's famous. And uh, and sometimes I've done it at the cost of metrics. But I think that's part of it. To me, you, you know, you basically explain the science behind why that worked. Yeah, I think that that's I, I think that's a great example. And I'm so happy to hear that that's uh, part of what you've experienced with the growth of the show. Um, I think I, I think I might have mentioned to you that the, the emails I get from people largely who have, you know, read the book and, and gotten excited about it are folks who've experienced this, um, you know, at their workplace or in, in growing the, the, um, um, activist movements they've grown or, or even the nonprofits they've tried to grow. Um, their success has come in these ways that are, you know, not obvious given the, uh, the standard sort of theory of influencers. And I get a lot of these anecdotes from people, which is, I, you know, in some ways it would have been nice to get these before I wrote the book. So I could have included <laughs> them in, in different chapters. But there's a lot of, just these really interesting anecdotes from all, you know, these different quarters of social life where people are saying like, this is exactly how I've experienced it. That like, it's grown in this way through the periphery that we reached a, a tipping point and then things changed. Um, and, you know, thank you for finally having a theory that explains this. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, my most influential mentor, uh, the guy who came with a name for this show and got me to where I'm at, had 150 followers on Twitter and was six weeks into his project. And to this day, nobody, I mean, and I've interviewed some pretty well-known people. None of them have had the same impact as he did. Hmm. Uh, Let's talk uh, about, you know, one other thing that you talk about, which is this whole idea. You say that, you know, to create real change, you need to do more than spread information. You have to change people's, you know, beliefs and behaviors. And those are much harder to influence. So when somebody like a Gary Vee, for example, just to give us something concrete, is able to build this sort of massive falling. What is he doing that's changing people's beliefs and behaviors? And is any of it just nonsense? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really the the question of change really has to go with um, when we see something spreading. Uh, are we seeing something that you know kind of reinforces people's kind of um, existing conceptions and ideas of like who they are, how they work, what they uh, believe in, um, or are we seeing the growth of a of a movement that actually shifts people's um, beliefs and their patterns of behavior? And I think, um, and a great example of this is something like sustainability. Right, we see a lot of polarization in the U.S. in the question of climate change and the question of like what sustainable practices should be. And so, one of the questions that comes up is, well, which strategy would you use if you just wanted to get people to change their practices around sustainability and energy consumption? And that winds up being kind of the bread and butter of it, which is, well, you can get people to talk about these things in different ways, but when do we actually see change in people like putting solar panels on their houses or um, or people starting to, uh, you know? turn lights off and 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 use air conditioners less um and that's where i think the the scientific studies that have been done around these sort of these network phenomena um are so enlightening because people's own perceptions of what's going to be effective for them if you ask them and this is what the studies have done that i think is so uh enlightening is to say you know what would be most effective for you do you want money do you want do you want a, you know just a, a good sense of your your role as a civic person or you know a member of the you know environmental community do you want um, some kind of public recognition like what is it that would get you to change your behavior and people have lots of ideas we all have beliefs about ourselves and what would get us to do something um, but then when you look at studies that have given people those um, uh, incentives and then compare them to other studies that have done kind of experimental controls where they give people other incentives, but just don't tell them about it. Like you give people uh, sort of social network information about what other people in your community are doing, um, but don't sort of highlight that this is supposed to be a mechanism for change. Just sort of provide it and see what happens. It turns out that people's guesses about what incentives are going to help them change are consistently wrong, right? We're very bad at interpreting and predicting our own behavior. Um, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, the science we can do is so, in, you know, informative now, because we can we can hold those sort of guesses side by side with the, you know, the strategies that are effective um, and see just how effective the, the sort of networking and the periphery strategies are for shifting people's behavior in ways that people themselves don't even recognize. I think one of the most compelling findings was that after people had already changed their behavior, say that the intervention had been effective, the researchers went back and asked them, okay, you know, what do you think now about what would be effective? And people still gave the same answers that they gave originally, which is that, you know, some financial incentives would be good, some, you know, awareness about, you know, social consciousness and, you know, environmental preservation would be good. In other words, even when uh, the networks around us change our behavior, we're somehow oblivious to the work that those networks are doing. Um, and so I think that when we look at change, we have to sort of fundamentally say, well, if we see someone becoming successful, they're becoming successful because they're just um, speaking to the beliefs and uh, biases that people have and kind of reaffirming them in a way that feels satisfying? Or are they somehow initiating a change process that's shifting people's way of acting and thinking, even though people may themselves may not recognize it? Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. No. Well, one other question I have about this, and you, you wrote extensively about weak ties and, and strong ties, uh, as, as well as bridges. Can you talk about that in the context of a social network, like how that all works? Yeah, so the this is this is kind of the bread and butter of I would say sociology in the last like 30, 40 years. Um there were a set of really nice results. This is the scholar uh Mark Randevetter, who in some ways was in many ways actually was an intellectual hero of mine. Um and he was the first one to really kind of put all of these sort of network ideas together in a really uh concrete and and coherent way that was extremely impactful on the development of the field of sociology and subsequently computer science, applied physics. It just had a a broad, broad impact. And what he said was, look, you know, most of us have friends and family who kind of know each other. We're in these sort of social clusters. But occasionally we meet someone who we don't know that well. They're kind of a casual contact. They're essentially a stranger. Um, someone you, you know, pre-COVID, someone you might have met like at an airport 
um, or sitting next to you on an airplane. And you exchange ideas with them. They tell you about a new app. You tell them about a new, you know, show on HBO that you like. Um, and then you go your separate ways because your social world and their social world are in you know, different universes. Um, and the idea is that that social tie is, you know, fairly meaningless to you in terms of like all the people that matter to you in your life. It's a kind of a weak tie in terms of the, the affect and the um, emotion that you invest in it. But the point that Granovetter makes is, look, that tie, because, you know, you and that other person live in like different social circles, that connection between you actually acts as this like long distance bridge that links these different parts of the social world. And the more of these long distance bridges there are, the faster that a new, you know, information about a new app or information about a new television program or information about a new job can kind of propagate from group to group to group all around the world. Um, and this became, in Betty Mays, the, the sort of, um, the idea, the concept, the sort of formalization that sat behind the viral model of spreading. Um, and that tied in with our sort of our classic notion of the influence in the sense that a person with lots and lots of weak ties is someone who's in a good position to spread lots of stuff. Um, and so by contrast, our strong ties are, you know, our friends and family. And of course, we have lots of trust and intimacy with our friends and family. Um, but, you know, they also have these patterns of connection where they kind of tend to form little triangles. So like, I know my best friend and my best friend knows my sister and my sister knows me, right? So these form into like little social triangles. And so the more of these triangles there are, the more the information kind of bounces around among the same people versus like jumping out to different communities. And that was in many ways, the big, the big insight um, of Granovetter's work, which I, I think put sociology on a kind of a new um, a footing really for for decades. And what, uh, what I, what I sort of contributed to this literature was to sort of interrogate whether that theory of spreading and that sort of theory of, of weak ties, um, worked the same way for, you know, disease and information spreading on the one hand and real behavior change and norm change on the other. Yeah. And that was, you know, I said the, the big insights were that when I started to look at this, um, I started to get results that were really, <laughs> counterintuitive um and that they were contradicting the last like 30 or 40 years of science and it was it was i was seeing the opposite of what i was supposed to see mm. where you put you know you put the the contagion into the little network model and instead of speeding up it would slow down wow. and so that's a that's a bizarre finding right that you put these weak ties and it's supposed to speed things up and it was slowing it down and then ultimately preventing spreading at all and so this is what you know got me to start thinking about well what is what's going on here and what scientifically is there, a, is there a deep explanation that we can come up with that helps us to kind of understand these, these sort of classes of cases, cases where we want to understand the viral spread of COVID-19? Absolutely. We want to understand the viral spread of misinformation? Absolutely. Um, does that theory then help us to understand effective ways of getting people vaccinated or effective ways of spreading face masks? It turns out, no. It turns out that if you want to sort of propagate behavior change or acceptance of new social norms, then you need different network strategies. And that's really where that distinction of strong and weak ties comes in in terms of thinking about social spreading. Yeah. Well, you know, when I hear you explain this, uh, you know, thinking about this whole idea of virality, I remember Seth Godin saying to me once that he said something out of his like eight or 10,000 blog posts, God knows how many there are at this point since he's been doing it every day for <laughs> 10 years. None of them have ever gone viral. And yet, you know, if you look up blog on the internet, I think Seth is probably the first person that comes up. Um, and, 
I, I wonder, this is kind of my sort of interpretation of, of some of this based on experience, you know, a blog post or two that goes viral. I realized if you don't have anything to keep these people coming back and you don't actually build any semblance of a relationship or connection with them, the virality basically, the, you know, today's viral sensation becomes tomorrow's afterthought. Uh, yeah. But I wonder I how you think about right. that. I think yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I think, yeah, there's a, no, it's a, it's a very interesting point. I think it goes to kind of a deeper, um, a deeper topic that I, I don't, I don't think I explored it, uh, as in depth in, in this book, but I've explored it in my, in my previous book, which is the question of kind of what can be thought of as like deep and shallow contagions, right? So if you conceptualize the space of social media, but more generally the space of kind of, you know, networks and information spreading across the world, um, it's denser now than it was, you know, a decade or two decades ago. There's just more and more stuff. And um, what that means is that there's kind of a competition in that space, right? There's like, you can only watch so much stuff in a day and stuff is flooding by so quickly that essentially certain things are going to gain attention and certain things aren't. Now, if it happens that the networks that make things spread fast are also the networks that kind of select on which for lack of a better word, we could call kind of, you know, shallow, convenient, familiar ideas, then it means that the vast majority of the things we're going to see spreading are things that are, you know, unless we go looking for them, um, are things that are, you know, shallow, convenient, and familiar. Um, and so you've got this kind of uh, process of what could, for lack of a better word, is like co-evolution. The networks are forming and then the content is forming to adapt to the networks because everyone's trying to get their content to spread the fastest and spread the farthest. Well, this creates a kind of evolutionary process in like the, you know, in the real classical sense of evolution where, you know, there's kind of a competition to be kind of the fittest meme or the fittest message where fit really just means spreading to more people. And so if the networks that make things spread are most effective for spreading simple contagions, simple ideas, then those are the things that are going to be populating you know, from the point of view of marketers and political campaigns, populating our sort of intellectual and social space. And if the networks that then support the spread of complex contagions are less prominent, and as a result of the success of these other kinds of contagions, um, less attractive, then we'll see a kind of uh, a kind of economy or a competition where we'll see fewer and fewer complex contagions and more and more simple contagions. And that has all kinds of interesting feedback effects. It means that the science of how we study this stuff, if our science is based on you know, massive data collection, that our science will start to select more and more simple contagions and start to believe that that is the universe of contagions as opposed to the complex contagions, which are there and which we've seen in things like Black Lives Matter, um, but which are you know, less day-to-day than the other kinds of memes that we see kind of getting traction and spreading wildly. Um, and so I think that it, it's... A, an interesting scientific observation, but actually has meaningful social implications too for how we cultivate the kinds of social networks that we'd like to see, um, you know, in in online communities to foster the kinds of the kinds of ideas and the, and the sort of depth of interaction that we'd like to um, help sustain mm-hmm. over the course of like the next iteration of cultural evolution, which is, you know, pretty much happening online at this stage. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the myth of stickiness because uh, you you say the myth of stickiness tells us that. Key product features offer a solution. If an initiative fails, the solution is to redesign your innovation with these features in mind, make it easier to use, make more striking or more memorable, less costly, or spruce up your campaign by making the messaging more fun and more emotionally engaging. 
And it just makes me think about, you know, something like conversion rate optimization where I'm sitting around tweaking my website to say, okay, well, you know, if we change this headline, will more people sign up for the newsletter? Um, but right. you're basically, uh, you're, you're kind of questioning that. And then you go on to say, the less familiar an innovation is, the greater the resistance to it typically will be. So how do you overcome that resistance? And, uh, you know, how, how do we stop wasting time on apparently what the things that we think are going to be effective, but are not? Yeah, and I think the social networks wind up being interesting here because they're both the problem and the solution. So um, one of the examples I give in the book is like Google Glass, right? And it's one of those cases where, yeah, you can design a you know a sticky, memorable, easy to talk about product. You can advertise it that way. Um, you know, Google Glass for those who don't remember, it's like a cyborg, you know, um, technology for you know surveilling and observing your your visual world um, while talking to people. And uh, what was interesting about it was that they used, you know, Google used influencers and they used sort of sticky advertising technologies, but the technology didn't just fail. It like backfired. People wound up referring to people who wore glass as glass holes and they wound up becoming like noticeably different from the rest of the population who they were trying to inspire to become glass wearers actually became, um, you know, um, a kind of counter movement against the product that was so effective that the product line was canceled and that actually Google's reputation was damaged by by the product. Um, and so the question is, well, what happened there? Like, why wouldn't stickiness solve the problem? Because it was this, you know, a sticky product marketed by influencers. And the answer is, well, like, there's social norms in the population that are kind of the starting point for engaging anyone. And the real thing to think about is, well, are those social norms going to... Uh, inspire people to react negatively to this idea. So the, you know, the stickier and the more compelling I make it, the more strongly people are going to react to the, um, to the initiative. And this is exactly what happened. You've got kind of a social backlash based on the fact that people felt like, you know, browsing the web in a face-to-face conversation was rude and that using a, you know, a kind of clandestine surveillance technology was, you know, a violation of privacy and, you know, smacked of like big technology exploiting, you know, regular citizens. Um, and so it wound up being uh, a kind of um, an innovation that although it was sticky, was nevertheless socially offensive. And I think this is the question really that, that gets to the, the sort of use of stickiness, which is if you, if you perceive that social norms are going to be an obstacle to an initiative, uh, then the goal isn't to make the initiative as sort of widely known and you know widely sticky as possible. Because what happened for Google Glass was that they actually had to try to undo the stickiness because everyone remembers Google Glass because of how sticky it was to talk about. And there, you know, Google actually tried to <laughs> get people to forget that. Um, what you really want to think about is well, what are the norms in a population that might cause an objection to this to this initiative, and how instead of trying to kind of overwhelm those norms by you know broadcasting this thing as widely as possible and and making it sort of as attractive as possible. How could I shift people's expectations about what they think is normal? And this is where the sort of network strategies become so interesting, is that when we look at the changes in social behavior that have been successful, we really see is they've gotten into the network in the right way and sort of to shift from the inside out people's norms about the way that we talk to each other and the expectations that we have in day-to-day life. And as a result of shifting those, then all of a sudden, new products and ideas become sort of palatable. They become interesting and relevant. Um, and so the I would say the solution to that kind of stickiness conundrum is to say, okay, we'll take a close look at the social networks and the norms within those networks. 
and then strategize about how to sort of engage with the population in a way that you know is um, is specific to their you know their existing beliefs and norms. And this comes up. This kind of thing comes up in public health all the time. It's like it's like a famous um, I would say you know bit of difficulty for public health campaigns in you know in in the U.S. but also in like Sub-Saharan Africa where you know, they've got great, you know, interventions designed to save lives. They're free. They're like, they've done everything to make it as sticky as possible. And, you know, people not only wind up not using it, but wind up like, you know, retaliating against it. Um, again, because the, you know, the stickiness of the product is, is somehow um, exacerbating the cultural backlash because the product itself, you know, violates people's social norms. And so the challenge and really what the, the book is about is, well, how do you get inside the norms that people have and how do you sort of move this process of normative convergence to a tipping point where the norms themselves change? And then all of a sudden, you know, lots of new products become acceptable because the norms that people have have shifted. Yeah. It, it, when, I, when I hear you explain it like that, the two things that come to mind for me were Airbnb and Uber, because I, I remember Chris Saka and many venture capitalists who first heard the idea of Airbnb were like, People are going to get murdered. There's no way we're going to invest in right. this company. And same thing with Uber. Right. People are like, you're going to get into a car with a complete stranger. Like, what did our parents tell us every time we were up? Don't talk to strangers. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yet those are now social norms. Uh, so for somebody listening to this who's a, a content creator, for example, who's starting from the ground up, because I think we've been talking at this at a very theoretical level and it – I think that's why I like this book is because you gave us more of a compass than a map. And uh, at the same time, I know there are people who are going to say, okay, well, thank you, Shreen. Now I have to go read this book, <laughs> listen to Damon talk about this a hundred <laughs> times, and I still won't know what the hell to do. But let's just, you know, bring it down to, you know, from the sort of high level, you know, overview to, okay, let's look at it on concrete on the ground. Let's just use something as simple as I'm going to start a blog. If I'm going to use your ideas to start a blog, I think I intuitively understand them because I've done this for 10 years. But if I'm starting out, everything you just said probably would have gone over my head. Yeah, I think, right. We're talking at a, at a fairly kind of general level. Um, so to, to address exactly that issue, and I think one of the goals of the book is to say, okay, you know, I, I would like people to sort of have, um, I, I personally am always frustrated with books that give lots of like funny anecdotes, interesting details, but don't actually have an overarching theory. Mm -hmm. Like they don't actually have grounded science that's like systematic that helps us to sort of <laughs> locate this within, you know, the history of ideas. We're just like, okay, here's some cute anecdotes. And then here's a kind of, you know, uh, an easy synthesis. Um, I feel like what's, what's compelling for me is that the, the scientific work, you know, is building on the stuff we've been doing for the last, like I said, 30, 40 years, and really presents a kind of a, a shift a sea change in how we think about these kinds of things. And that really should have implications because all of this science is what sits behind all of the kind of popular books in this space. So once we have a new scientific idea of how the world works, we should actually have new practical implications. Um, and that's kind of where the book ends. And I do these kinds of seven strategies at the end of the book where they kind of, you know, lay out in fairly specific terms. Um, and I would say that, you know, one is, uh, is to think about um, this sort of topic I was talking about earlier about building bridges. When we think about building bridges, we think about like establishing a connection to someone from a different group. Um, and the real concept with bridge isn't so much the distance between groups, which is the classic, you know, weak tie concept of groups far away. Um, it's the width of the bridge. And that's really a new concept that comes from, from these scientific breakthroughs is that the number of overlapping ties in the bridge winds up being like the key factor for determining the success and effectiveness of that bridge 
in creating kind of a coordinated understanding across across different groups. And I elaborate this in detail with the Black Lives Matter example, but also with the growth of Silicon Valley. It, it shows up again and again, these different contexts that you start to see these sort of overlapping, intertwining connections across different, um, either different organizations or different social groups. And you start to see them coordinate just naturally on a new way of thinking and talking. And this really, this seems like, you know, you just say, oh, people are coordinating. It doesn't seem deep. It is incredibly deep because fundamentally what we are doing in society is coordinating with each other. And the vast majority of this coordination is done without ever thinking about it. You, you just don't. You just, when you're walking down the street, you just don't bump into other people. And now with COVID, you know, with re- with regard to like our shifting social norms about how to, you know, handle social space, we're all kind of like bumping around together trying to figure out collectively how to maintain ourselves in a space that like we're sharing. And this is also happening online. You know, what kinds of ways of talking are acceptable or not acceptable? What sort of topics are acceptable or not acceptable? We're all kind of figuring this out together. And this is an evolutionary process. It never, ever stops. Um, and the point is, that by building bridges across communities, specifically looking to communities that you want to establish relationships with and thinking about it in a more systematic fashion than just, you know, weak ties in all directions, but thinking about building overlapping ties with specific groups and then creating kind of a coordinated language across these groups and then building overlapping ties to still other groups and still other groups creates kind of a more systematic and kind of constructive way of building an architecture and what I referred to as an infrastructure that fundamentally supports change. Um, and so that that's a, I describe in detail in the book, like examples of how you can go about doing that. And I give examples in organizations and so forth about the strategies a person would use to do this. Um, but the, per, the the point is that it winds up being uh, more effective than in, in a way it should be because it's just a way of kind of, it's just a different networking strategy is all it is. Yeah. But it has these kinds of um, uh, properties in terms of supporting uh change and supporting um, innovation adoption and supporting a way of thinking that grows beyond any one group's agenda and creates kind of a collective agenda for the group in a way that's very, very powerful. Um, And again, this is where, you know, examples like Silicon Valley and Black Lives Matter stand out because um, we've got these instances of social change that are so powerful. Um, So I would say that's, you know, building wide bridges and what that means is, is really, you know, one of the most effective ways of thinking about how to, how to construct, um, networks in a way that that moves beyond the kind of classical classical theories of spreading and, and viral spreading. Yeah. Um, and then I would say a, a second point, and this really goes to social media in particular, is that one of the things I found is that as people interact together, um, they in if the structure is right, if you if you build these kinds of communities in the right way, people actually get smarter. And it it's remarkable to see these when you can study, you know, We've studied Democrats and Republicans talking about climate change. We say smokers and non-smokers talking about smoking risks. In my last study, I studied, you know, physicians looking at patients of different race and gender. And in all these cases, initially, you get these like hugely biased responses. You get, you know, Republicans and Democrats biased about climate change in exactly the way that you would think. And you get even clinicians biased, you know, against a black female patient versus a white male patient in ways that are kind of horrific to see. Um, but then the question is, is there a strategy of using these kinds of um, network interventions to shift people's way of talking and thinking about these topics that's effective, even for like professional doctors? Um, and the answer is, yeah, what, one really important thing you can do is to create a space where people aren't hindered by their personal status or their sort of um, uh, what you may think of as like their loyalty 
to some kind of um, organization or some kind of tribe. So in the case of Democrats or Republicans, the, the extent to which you can reduce um, you know, memes and uh, videos and graphics that remind people of like political identity, um, it actually allows people to kind of move into a conversation that's really productive just by virtue of kind of eliminating these other factors from, um, from their sort of uh, social environment. Wow. I, I feel like this is a really deep rabbit hole. My guess is obviously you've, you've spent a good amount of your life doing this work. I feel like there's, is there a follow-up book to this? Cause I feel like there would be. Yeah. I, well, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, in many ways, when you write a book, your, your next book is like, you know, your last chapter of the book <laughs> yep. is like, is like anticipating, you know, what I want to do next. Um, and so in many ways, the, you know, I think that my first book was, you know, kind of raised a bunch of questions at the end of the book that were like, what this, this book change was all about was like, okay, how do we actually use this? Um, and, uh, and where I, and this book is starting to ask these questions about, um, about bias, really about the biases we have, you know, in, in the most obvious basic way, you know, when we say, well, you know, people, there's partisan and political bias, but in deeper ways, in ways that are, you know, not obvious that are, you know, either cultural bias or even just cognitive bias, like the ways that we perceive things. Um, and whether those are things that are just kind of like fixed or whether there are ways in which the same kind of um, social change process I described in this book can also be thought of as uh, really a, a collective intelligence process. Like, is there a way of structuring populations, structuring communities, structuring hospitals, structuring civic organizations, um, creating connections among, uh, you know, hospital groups and um, patient groups in a way that creates just greater intelligence in the community as a whole? And what this does, this this whole sort of new, um, this new book that I'm working on, what it does is it, it just eliminates the whole concept of experts and of um, people who sort of you know, have higher status or greater authority and shows that when we do this in an effective way, there's, there are like really deep lessons that come out of this where you can have doctors making better and more accurate decisions by virtue of not deferring to the highest, most senior doctor, by virtue of like taking some of the junior residents into account um, or, you know, have uh, political leaders make better decisions by virtue of including regular citizens information and ideas, because, Really, there's just this tremendous amount of tacit knowledge that is in our day-to-day lives, and um, it's rarely extracted and it's rarely integrated into our decision making. And I don't think that's anyone's fault. I think it's just the way that we've kind of built our institutions. But what I've realized as a result of thinking through this <clears throat> this process of social change is that the next step past change is okay. Once you once you successfully initiate a tipping point and change everything, then you know what does society look like then? What you know what are the relevant structures for like living a good life where you know we're not trying to sort of have change after change after change. We're having trying to <clears throat> initiate successful change to reach some kind of um, new plateau or new standard of you know productivity or um, innovation or you know intelligence as a as a society. And that's really what the next book is about, is showing that you, we, we can use the ideas from the change process to then build infrastructures that allow us to sort of be more productive and, um, uh, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, uh, more engaged society. Wow. Uh, it's funny, just based on our conversation, I feel like I'm going to have to go back and read your book again. And I, I took thorough <laughs> notes on it. I, I rewrote all your note, you know, your key insights in my own words. And uh, 
even after this conversation, I want to go back to read it. Uh, but um, this has been really, really fascinating. And uh, for people who are listening, I honestly, I can't recommend Damon's book highly enough. It was hands down the best book I read in 2022. And those of you who know me know I read a lot of damn books. So for me to say that should carry some weight, hopefully. Um, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews uh, on the Unmistakable sure. Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. I knew I knew it was going to be one of these like brain teaser questions. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> um, I'm I'm stumped because I'm not really quite sure what we mean by un- unmistakable. You mean just stand out? Yeah, I mean, well, Not-worthy. it's funny. Yeah, I guess that that is the way. You know, when you write a book called Unmistakable, you know, uh, as you do with any publisher, you have to actually define it. So, yeah, that is how I defined it as something that nobody else could do but you. I would say that. Well, I guess my feeling is that it, it all has to do with our, you know, the expectations and the the sort of the, the I'm going to take a sociological take on this, right? That I think it has to do with the norms that we're, um, we're familiar with and that we are used to seeing um, and something that, you know, violates our expectations that's counterintuitive uh, really stands out and is um, hopefully something that uh, becomes an unmistakable reference for thinking about a problem in a way that we have never thought about it before. Beautiful. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time to join us and share your story, wisdom, and insights with our listeners. Um, I hope you get to writing that next book quickly because I liked your, you know, your, <laughs> yeah, the, the the recent one so much, and I'm going to go buy your other book. Uh, where can people find out more about you, the book, uh, your work, and everything else you're up to? Uh, so the um, there's a research group which is called the Network Dynamics Group, and this is it's kind of a you know it's like for scientists and journalists, really. Uh, but then it's the idea is to give a kind of public access um, yeah, uh, vehicle for everything that we do. So it's got all the studies, the studies that are talked about in this book, in addition to studies that I've been working on, you know, for decades. Um, and then also to the, the new latest stuff that we're sort of doing right now, um, like on, you know, vaccine hesitancy, on conspiracy theories, all these kinds of things, like all of this stuff is up there. And one of the interesting things about the Network Dynamics Group site is that um, in addition to including like, you know, quick, you know, video summaries of the of the projects and 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 the, the major results we have, um, it also includes all of the scientific papers and all of the data if anyone wants to just download and play with it. So it's just kind of a, kind of a playground for people who are interested in this kind of research. Amazing. Uh, and for everybody listening, We will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.